Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. We've talked before on this podcast about ESG, that's Environment, Social and Governance Investing, as a way of putting your money into... What is it, Neil? It's doing uh, it's good. It's doing well by doing That's good. That's the one. That's in the, the one. words of the old dope peddler. <laughs> anyway, we decided we'd take another look at it in the light of recent events, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which seems to have thrown a new light on ESG and allowed people to look at the way these things are measured. And I'm very pleased to say that we're joined today to talk about this by Merrin Somerset Webb. She's the editor-in-chief of Money Week, a contributing editor to the FT, and also the author of a new book, Share Power. The strapline is how ordinary people can change capitalism and make money too. That sounds a bit like ESG, Marion. A bit like ESG, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> very good. So, so the reason that I thought we'd talk about this was that I was very struck by some research which had been done by an admittedly quite sceptical professor at NYU Stern called Aswat Damodaran, who looked at the Russian crisis. And basically, he started from the perspective of ESG rankings, which are the, the scores that are given to companies and stocks to say, you can invest in this and you shouldn't invest in that. A lot of people who advocate this sort of investment had been suggesting that this sort of situation, a sudden crisis like Ukraine, ESG would weather better because it had a moral take on the stock market, on investment, and that would allow the sort of heavy losses which would be taken by others to be avoided. He looked at this and he found that actually ESG completely missed Russia. The, the ratings... Sorry, how do you mean it completely missed okay, Russia? Okay, so I'll explain. The ratings agencies, the sort of ratings agencies which score listed companies for their ESG ratings, didn't mark down anyone in advance for having Russian exposure. And he looked at four companies, Severstal, Sparebank, Yandex and Lukoil, all of whose share prices collapsed after the invasion, and they were all in the top quartile of their industry groups even though they were subsequently, after the invasion, of course, all downgraded very heavily. So that sort of struck me as being a bit like the kind of uh, ratings agencies before the credit crisis, who were all very wise after the event, but didn't shut the stable door before the horse had left. And the other point he made was he said, actually, ESG would make things even worse for you after the Russian invasion, because of the general aversion that ESG has to fossil fuel companies, you would have missed the best performing sector in the global stock market, which was fossil fuel companies which didn't operate in Russia. So the conclusion he drew was that all the mechanisms that were supposed to drive you to do the right thing and to make money by doing so were actually driving you, A, to do the wrong thing, and B, everything had been changed as a result of the uh, crisis anyway. And some of us were not really surprised by this, because the idea that you can do well by doing good, I think is an illusion. And I think that the thing that has driven this sector is people's faith that that can happen. If you look at where the money has gone, it has gone to funds which have been very heavily promoted as doing good. 
rather than anything much to do with the ability of the fund to make you money. So it was just encouraging people to follow the fashion. And like all fashions, once it's followed, it's no longer fashionable. No, indeed. But Merrin, I'm interested in your view on this. Do you think that this sort of thing shows that this whole scoring mechanism makes no sense to begin with? Well, the first thing to say is yes, the scoring system makes no sense at all. But I think we need to come back to that because there's something there's something more fundamental to the whole thing, which is that there has been this idea, as you've just said, that you can invest in good stuff and also outperform over the long term. That's the absolute basis of ESG investing. It's a win-win. You lose nothing if you do it. Right. Now, the key there is, is there is no long-term evidence for that. ESG investing has only existed in statistically significant terms since around 2015, right? So it has coincided with a period when very low interest and interest rates and very loose monetary policy have driven this huge boom, some of the way bubble, I'll go bubble, in growth stocks, in uh, low profit stocks, etc. So you have this huge multiple expansion, particularly in the US. And as part of that, a huge multiple expansion of renewable energy stocks. So what we've had is a period in which companies, stocks, which you can easily classify as ESG, i.e. tech stocks, they tick a lot of the boxes, you haven't got mines, they haven't got, you know, legacy unpleasant worker practices, they haven't got anything obviously dirty. So a tech stock very easily falls into any old ESG box you'd like to have. And that's the same, as I say, with the renewable energy stocks, with lots of new exciting space stocks, for example, they fit very neatly into ESG, should they? I don't know, but they have. So what we've had is a period in which possibly the outperformance of the high growth sector, which I think Neil and I might agree has been driven by very low interest rates, has been misunderstood as a validation of ESG investing over this very short period of time. There is no evidence that this would work over a longer period of time. And what we are seeing here, the war in Ukraine has thrown up a whole load of elements that show us that that performance isn't necessarily going to be long-term. So the rise in inflation, which leads everyone to expect to turn in interest rates, obviously changes the way that we value profits going forward, right? So that gives us a fall off in the high growth stocks and that automatically leads us to the beginning of the underperformance of ESG. Yeah. That's the key underlying dynamic here. The tick box stuff is all fussed around the edge. The underlying dynamic is that the shift in interest rates and inflation expectations mm. changes the performance of what you might previously have been considered to be ESG stocks. And that then leads us on to the utter brilliance of the fund managers changing the definition of ESG. This is exactly the point I want to home in on. Because in theory, an investor could say, you're absolutely right, the craze for this stuff comes from the fact that it did well for a bit. And it will no doubt face a bit of a Waterloo because ESG funds are not doing very well now. But there is, in theory, an investor could say, I'm prepared to take a little bit of a lower return because I, I want to change the world we live in and I want to do some good. People could say that. That's not what they said, and it's not what they were. I know, but the, but the, but the <laughs> fundamental point is, even if even if you took such a view, even if you, you discounted all the moonshine, you're clinging to the idea that these directions that are being given to fund managers to invest in this and not in that would actually sort of lead them in a direction which would do some good. But there's absolutely no evidence for that at all. It just seems to be completely all over the place. Well, the theory was, of course, that the 
cost of capital for compliant ESG businesses would be lower because more capital would be directed their way and the cost of capital for the non-compliant ones would be higher because people would shun the shares and thus they would have to pay more when they wanted to expand. I'm hugely sceptical about the cost of capital argument, but nevertheless, this is what was put forward. And over time, because the capital would be cheaper for the compliant companies, then there would be better returns for the shareholders. Now, I fear we're all agreed that this is indeed moonshine, but it was very compelling, as demonstrated by the fact there's 17 trillion dollars in ESG funds worldwide, or funds that describe themselves as ESG orientated. One of the things, of course, is that they have been helped by the fact that really is no satisfactory definition of ESG. And I give you an example with the armaments manufacturers, which of course were shunned last year by the ESG lobby. But this year we've suddenly decided we rather need them. As long as they're selling the stuff to our, the people who are on our side, we think that's a good thing. So I would say that the charade is going to come to an end sooner rather than later. Well, I think that the point there is that you can redefine anything. I mean, previously, obviously, there were good sounding reasons for not including defence stocks in any ESG portfolio. And even eight weeks ago, every fund manager was their sort would have told us that they were excluding them. But now we look at them and we say, well, hang on a tick. Maybe you can't fit them into environment and uh, maybe you can't fit them into governance because the clients are always a bit dodgy. But you sure as hell can fit them into social because, you know, this is about the maintenance of our security and our living standards. So suddenly defence stocks are the S part of ESG. And I don't think right now, looking at what's happening in Europe, you could argue with that. Are defence stocks a good thing in a portfolio? Well, sadly, yes. And fossil fuels, you know, we look at those and until very recently, it was very easy to do this when fossil fuels were relatively cheap. When oil is cheap, it's easy to dismiss the whole sector, right? And assume it's going to last forever and say, this is a terrible thing, we're going to have wind turbines instead. But when suddenly the neglect of the fossil fuel industry means that people's living standards are immediately and unpleasantly impacted, suddenly you can look at it and say, well, hang on a tick, what's more important here? Maintaining people's living standards, having a plentiful and incredibly intense source of energy, which is what has driven every single industrial revolution since the beginning of time. Do we want that? And do we want rising living standards? Or do we want to start fossil fuels of capital? And that's a conversation we should definitely be having. And if you feel that people's living standards are the most important thing, and there's another thing to argue about. If you feel that, then this is most definitely an S. And it's also most definitely a G. It all depends, is the point you're making. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there are no iron rules. If ESG can be everything, yeah. which it can be, then of course it is also nothing. Which raises, of course, the question of why we're paying this industry to tell us to invest in weapons stocks when we suddenly decide we need them and uh, not to invest in them at other times. Yeah. Marina, I'd like your view on Carl Icahn who is, as you know, a very distinguished, if that's the word, corporate raider, who has now, in his declining years, decided to go into bat for pigs. And he has savaged the McDonald's burger chain, of which his funds hold shares in, for not treating their pigs well enough. Do you think that that's something that he should be doing? 
Do you think that's way beyond his remit? Or do you think that just shows that ESG is now mainstream? I don't think this has anything to do with the ESG. This is Carly Khan's personal view. And this, this is my kind of shareholder activism, by the way. You know, he's not BlackRock. He's not State Street. He's not Vanguard. He's not assuming the views of millions of other people. He's taking his own view, his own shareholding, and attempting to make a point. And he, by the way, do McDonald's treat their pigs appallingly? Yes, absolutely, disgustingly appallingly. Hang on, note to lawyers here. <laughs> if ordinary retail investors really understood what happened to pigs at McDonald's, would they all be on Carla Khan's side? Absolutely. So is that an argument for Carly Khan not doing this? Or is it an argument for more transparency for the retail investor to understand how companies work and have the power to vote as well? I'd say the latter. So you've written a book which is about how you can change the world through investment choices and make money doing so. So obviously, it's not ESG that you're recommending. But is there a way you think you obviously you do think there's a way you can make a difference with your investment choices. But tell us a bit about how you think you should go about it, as opposed to the way in which we are going about it. I'd like a disclaimer on the make money two bit, please. Okay, we won't make any money by reading your book. Is that what you're saying? Up in the air, who can know? Who can know? Listen, the, uh, the, the key point of the book is that there's been a terrible disconnect inside shareholder capitalism. And that, you know, the great idea of shareholder capitalism, Margaret Thatcher's wonderful idea, Ronald Reagan's wonderful idea, was that if you could make everybody shareholder, you could also make everybody a stakeholder. And if everybody had some kind of share in the, in capitalism, in corporate capitalism, and understood that they had that share, then they would be naturally supportive of capitalism. That'd be good for all of us, because as we know, or or I hope the three of us know, uh, capitalism is the only system that works for us. And of course, the only system that is available to us because the only system that works with the way that humans are, you know, we're accumulators, we're improvers, savers. So we must have capitalism and we must have support for it. And the idea was that if you gave everybody a, a an obvious stake in it, then they would be natural supporters. Yeah. Now, of course, it didn't work because she managed to get shares into the hands of only a relatively small number of people, yeah. about 9 million people, so not that small, not awful, but not great either. Mm. And of course, being a shareholder back in the old days and uh, making the 70s and the 80s the old days here, back in the old days was very admin heavy and uh, something that most people really didn't get particularly involved in. So people didn't build the portfolios that she wanted. Now, imagine if Maggie Thatcher could come back and see us today when pretty much everybody in the UK is a shareholder one way or another via auto-enrollment. Here we are, 75, 80% of people in work hold shares via their auto-enrollment pension. And then you have another 3 million people with stocks and shares. I said, you've got another three, 400,000 with SIPs, et cetera. This is the vast majority of the country yeah. being shareholders, having a stake in corporate capitalism. Mm. But of course, also having absolutely no idea that they have a stake in corporate capitalism. Yeah. Most of them can't vote. They should be able to, and that's the key point of the book. They own shares, but they don't know they own shares, and they also don't know that they part own the companies they profess to loathe. So when they go out and you know protest against Shell or talk about evil capitalism or evil companies, they don't understand that their future is inextricably bound to the fortunes of those companies. So what the book is about is about finding ways to return power to the and beneficial owner and should be voter. So right now, of course, as we know, most of the power over corporates, most of the votes rest in the hands of the very big fund managers. Who are not actually the owners of the shares, they're just intermediaries. So do you have a remedy for this? 
They have all the rights of ownership, not the actual ownership. And that's where the ESG... Power without responsibility. Yeah, but they have all the the power to say to companies, you know, you have to have a a zero carbon plan, you have to have diverse boards, you have to this, you have to that, to try and persuade companies of their responsibility to solve the socio-political problems of the world, when maybe you and I might say that it's the problem of companies to make a good product or a good service, to do that in a a reasonable way, and to then uh, share the profits out between future investments and dividends. That would be the the more old-fashioned take on. But what is your remedy for this? And there are lots of remedies. There's a simple starting point, which is just to have the platforms make it easier for people who own shares in individual companies to vote for them. And that's something that is happening in the UK already. So Interactive Investor in particular is very on top of this. Then there is definitely the technology is available should fund managers care to use it to give everybody a look through vote. That's not going to happen for quite a long time. But already we are seeing, for example, at BlackRock, who I'm not always polite about in my book, but I will give them the credit of saying that they have already set up systems to pass votes from their funds to institutional owners of their funds. So you've got big fund manager passing votes back to big fund manager, which is not quite what I have in mind, but it's a start and it shows the possibilities. And they also have a team working on finding ways to return elements of power to the individual investor. I don't know if you read Larry Fink's letter this year, but in it, he said that he can see a time, he's such a visionary, he can see a time when even, and the word even is doing a lot of heavy lifting here, when even the individual investor has access to the votes or the fractional votes that they should have. So it is happening. There's a lot of uh, regulatory impetus behind it in the US. There's some regulatory impetus behind it in the UK. And there are also quite a few very interesting smaller companies working to rebuild the relationship between retail investor and company. You're, You're talking about obviously the governance, the voting, the influencing corporates in which you're invested. But we live in a world of giant funds where people are enrolled in schemes and invested by people they never meet. So their ability to direct those funds, i.e. to say what we started off talking about, which is I want to invest in McDonald's or I don't. Do you envisage a world in which you, you would ever have that sort of control? Or do you think that there's no way which is not bureaucratic and hopeless to allow for those sort of choices? No, this is it. there is a huge amount of impetus behind this in the industry and people that big businesses talking about finding way to get every individual curated fund that works with their, um, well, let's say their prejudices, right? Yeah. And there are also some uh, fascinating smaller companies and one that I talk about a lot to the extent they're probably getting bored of me praising them. There's a company called uh, Tumelo set up in the last few years, which works with some of the big funds. Called what? Sorry? Tumelo. T-U-M-E-L-O. Maybe they call it Tumelo, but I'm, I've been calling it Tumelo. So. I call it Tumelo. Tumelo sounds a bit disturbing. <laughs> they might choose something that actually is easily okay. said. Let's get away from the name. <laughs> they have arrangements with uh, some of the big fund managers. And so you can, because this is an educational process as much as anything else. So let's say you have your auto-enrollment pension with LNG. They will send you an email, which you, I hope you will read. You might not, but maybe you will, which will explain to you that you should go to a part of their website and, and see what, what it actually means to have an auto-enrollment pension with LNG. You can go to the website, see the fund that you're in, and then instead of getting a couple of paragraphs of complete gobbledygook, like we normally get on our pension statements, right? You can then see every single company that your money is invested in. You can see what the company does. You can see you know, a few of its more obvious metrics. And then, and here's a crucial bit, you can see what votes are coming up. And on interesting and important issues that shareholders might care about, your views are then asked for. This is not legally binding. 
You don't get to vote your four and a half shares or whatever it is, but you get to say how it is that you would vote in this. And so, for example, I've been uh, back to McDonald's, but there was one a while ago on um, should McDonald's be more open about the way it used antibiotics, for example. You can then vote on that. And while LNG will not guarantee to take the majority view of its end clients, its end owners, it will take that into account, we'll look at it, we'll consider it, and we'll report back on why it has not voted in that way, if it has not. Now, that kind of thing is huge progress. Yeah, I'm afraid, in my view, I think it's a fantasy, this, because the reason why people buy pooled funds of one sort or another is they either don't understand or can't be bothered to work out what to do with their money, but they've been told countless times that it's a better idea to have an interest in shares rather than letting it sit and moulder in the bank, which has been true almost since the stock market started. But I really don't see that people are going to invest the time required to come to any sort of conclusion, even if they want to. I mean, I think it's a lovely idea, and a few people will get involved. But I think that in terms of what might be described as popular capitalism, I just don't see it. There we are. There's the uh, <laughs> the voice of gloom. There's a generational <laughs> disconnect here in that it's important to remember that until maybe 10 years ago, the majority of the population of the UK had absolutely no need to ever engage at all with the financial industry. The majority of pensions were defined benefit. And if they weren't defined benefit, if they were defined contribution, they were a company scheme of some kind, and they automatically transferred into being an annuity. So the absolute maximum amount of time anyone ever had to spend engaging with finance was about half an hour while they decided to take the annuity recommended to them by their annuity company, maybe five minutes, right? This doesn't exist anymore. This dynamic is gone. I very much hope you're right. And as long as we place an obligation of some kind, an educational obligation on our fund managers, and this is what's lacking here, we've placed an educational and transparency obligation on our fund managers, and crucially, and Neil will hate this as well, but here we go now. He's going to be quiet. Yep, go on. No, he's not. I'm going to aim to get to the end of this next bit without being interrupted, okay? Crucially, now I you should be so lucky. Ah, ah, I knew it. I knew it. To add any extra regulatory burdens to listed companies, I think is a terrible idea. But I think that it would be a great idea that at least one non-executive director at every listed company would be obliged to take on the responsibility for communication with and engagement with investors, both retail and institutional, to ensure that their voices are heard I think, again, that would make a difference. I think that's a very interesting idea. And now that Neil has rubbished your life's work by saying it will never work, <laughs> I, I would just like to say that when I was preparing for this podcast, I was talking to my 18-year-old daughter about this very subject. And actually, weirdly, she said, you know, why can't you have a thing where people can make their individual choices and use their... So I think there is a generational issue here. So I think, uh, you know... <laughs> well, Get I'm so program, old. I, yeah, I'm past it now, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's downhill only. But I really hope you're right. But, uh, you know, we do seem to have been around this circuit in one form or another in the past. The big thing that is different now is that the technology allows it to be done very cheaply and quite effectively. 
So it's possible. You may be right. But I'm afraid my sceptical old uh, old man says we've been here before. OK, and on that world-weary note, Marion, I'm afraid we're probably going to have to draw it to a close. But is there anything you didn't say that you would <laughs> like to say now? I'll tell you what I will say, which is that young people are much more engaged, I think, than we ever were when we were in our 20s and 30s. They're much more interested. They're also much more critical of capitalism. And so I think probably more driven to try and change things. And they're also so tech savvy and the whole gamification of finance, I think can really be harnessed to change the way that people who own bits of companies can connect with those companies. I really think there's something in it. I think that's a much better note to end on than my rather miserable comments. So, Marin, thank you very <laughs> much. Them. They're so characteristic. I, no, they're not. <laughs> I, you know, I think, I really do hope you're right. And I'd be delighted to be proved wrong here. Campaign for real shareholders, I think, is thoroughly worthwhile and more power to it. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.